This is Party Politics, a podcast to prep you with understandable political chatter for your next cocktail party. I'm Jay Iyer, a political science professor from Texas Southern University. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Well, Jay, we've got an interesting week. We have domestic intrigue. We've got wiretapping. We've got foreign conflicts. It is like a James Bond film out there. So let's start domestically talking about what's happening in the White House. Yeah, it's like a season from the HBO's The Wire, right? So apparently Paul Manafort, former campaign chairman for the Trump for President campaign, um, was wiretapped under subpoena. Um, He apparently had an apartment in, in Trump Tower. There's been excerpts about how they had picked the lock and gone in. Um, He's been interrogated, and they've got a treasure trove of information that I think, at least the allegation is, that uh, corroborates a lot of the relationship between Manafort uh, and the Russian government, and there's a whole series of intrigue that has uh, now opened up. I guess, is it possible to be shocked but not surprised by this. Um, I've, I've you know, written a bunch of stuff on, including a book on political scandal, and these things always surprise me. Um, and the fact that they are so monumental in terms of how internally the White House deals with these kinds of moments of crisis, but also externally how it looks to people in terms of trust in government are both profound. In this case, you have the potential that the president has brought into the mix on this. So like you said, Manafort was being wiretapped both before he left the Trump campaign and after. And so there could potentially be some evidentiary conversations with the president on this. What they said would be potentially very interesting to Robert Mueller. Um, The other is that beyond the wiretapping, there were additional requests for information from Mueller to the White House on some specific things that the president had done, especially the firing of FBI Director James Comey. So the investigation continues lurking in the background of all the stuff that happens every week is this right we almost forget about it but it's still there and it still creeps into the white house that has a tremendous effect on the white house ability to govern and also externally how they relate to congress so are we at that point where we're asking that those famous questions of the president you know what did he know and when did he know it yeah i think that's exactly it and those are the most damning questions because they're so direct and they're so kind of cleanly identifiable. So that's something that the White House always wants to avoid. They want to expunge scandal as quickly as possible. All internal polling from almost every president who's been involved in the situation shows this. Will the president be able to successfully insulate himself from this? It's unclear. And once we know more about what's on those tapes, I think we're going to get a lot of sort of disinformation. And and the underlying question, I guess, with a lot of this is that the underlying legitimacy of the 2016 election. Yeah. And former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has sort of come out of the shadows again. Now speaking in public, she's promoting a book. But I know she's gone on interviews where she's essentially directly raised this question, right? Brandon, what did you think about that? What did you think about what she was saying? I think that, you know, she's right clearly that there's no way to really challenge this in any kind of formal way. This is all informal. And the politics of this just won't go away, right? The fact that he won the way that he did and he's governed the way that he has has rubbed so many people the wrong way that even the most basic institutions of elections in this country, the foundation of democracy, have been questioned. I thought it came off like a little bit of sour grapes. Um, That's something I think that is always present, you know, no matter how um, you lose. (laughs) But in this case, it was so pronounced from her and from the content of her book that it was really hard to get away from that. Yeah, it's hard because I think the tradition has been that the individual who loses has a tendency to, to, to I think, stay away uh, and, and really not 
you know, as, a, as the kids say, throw shade on, on the winner. <laughs> right. um, and so, I, I mean, that's been the tradition with both Al Gore certainly took that position. Um, and Mitt Romney, to some extent, took that position. So um, I, I, I do think it's sort of a different approach. But we are we're sort of living in, in sort of different times in general. But I mean, we're talking a lot about this and sort of politics. And, you know, you mentioned that this sort of out there always. The other thing that's been really out there for as <laughs> long as this, <laughs> this whole presidency has been around is trying to repeal Obamacare. And the bill that will not die has is apparently trying to resurrect itself yet again. It's back, Jay. Uh, John Cornyn suggested that the effort to repeal Obamacare was like Lazarus being raised from the dead. So the most recent incarnation is Graham Cassidy, which sounds more like kind of progressive folk rock band, but is actually an effort to try to put together enough votes in the Senate to get some kind of Obamacare repeal passed. Just some of the highlights include rolling back subsidies to people who buy individual insurance, eliminating the employer and individual mandate, shifting some of the Obamacare subsidies into block grants for states so they can kind of create their own system. So it looks a little bit like the prior incarnations of the repeal effort, but some of the implications are slightly different. Yeah, I think this is probably the most fundamental change of the reform models that they've used. The previous ones had really all kind of been kind of Obamacare light. Yeah. They allowed state, they allowed the exchanges to exist. This does not. Um, they allowed the subsidies to a lesser extent to exist. This does not. This bundles everything together, throws them at the states, and says, states, you figure out how you want to use it. The big problem, as I see it, is that it does this one mechanism where it rewards states that chose not to participate in Medicaid expansion. Um, states like, like Cal- right, and and it yeah. it penalizes states that did. So in a state like Texas that has been pushing back and has not, they will see a net gain. California, Massachusetts, Alaska, um, they will see a net loss, and that big cost shift I think is pretty dramatic. And there's no guarantees. So a lot of the issues like protections against pre-existing conditions age-out limits, all of that goes away, and you no longer have even that minimum standard. This is a pretty radical change, and again comes down to three United States senators, Collins, Murkowski, and McCain, to decide the future of healthcare. What's the definition of crazy, right? Like trying to do the same thing over and over again and hoping for different results. I think politically, they're not going to get much traction. They may be able to get one or two of those folks. But, for instance, Murkowski is worried that it might hurt her state, like the people would be thrown off of the coverage because it could be that. And although CBO hasn't scored it, we could be seeing you know up to 30 million people not have health care that they had before. And I think somebody like John McCain has said, suggested that this should go through regular order, right? right? We know that they are up against a deadline of reconciliation. If they want to get this done, using reconciliation it has to be done by the 30th of September. Congress doesn't move quickly often, <laughs> and this is hard to be able to do, especially when they're not even in session, which they're not during most of this week. So this is something I think that politically is hard to do with a time limit. It makes it even more challenging. Here's an interesting little tidbit about it. This is not an actual bill. It's actually an amendment to a prior right. bill, which under the Senate rules limits debate to about 120 seconds. 60 seconds on each side. So the amount of time we just spent talking about it is more than the United States Senate will spend debating Graham Cassidy. It's only a third of the whole U.S. economy, right? Yeah, a sixth, a sixth, right? Rewriting a sixth of the U.S. economy. Crazy. Well, speaking of the economy, Jay, we've got a competition 
bachelor style or bachelorette style, I guess, if you're inclined, um, about where Amazon will locate their headquarters. Tell us about this. Yeah, Amazon has put out a, a request for proposals from, from cities. They've decided to open up a second national headquarters or North American headquarters, and it's going to employ 50,000 people. It's going to be on par with what they have in Seattle, and it has created a feeding frenzy among cities throwing themselves, hoping to get that coveted red rose. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth a lot, too, right? The, some of the numbers include about 50,000 new jobs with an average salary of $100,000. One commentator I noted who was a, in the business world suggested that this was like the Olympics of the corporate world. So every city wants this, including Texas, and Texas definitely needs it. We need a shot in the arm after things happen with Harvey. Right. Well, Jeff Bezos is famously from Texas and has a giant ranch in West Texas. Went, he's a graduate of Lanier Elementary, Lanier wow. Middle School So uh, here in Houston. And so, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I, my bet is Dallas or Austin seem like the most obvious places for him. Um, but, but who knows? We'll, we'll see uh, if he ends up in Texas or he ends up somewhere else. Wherever they go, Amazon is, is about to be the biggest employer in some major city. One last thing. And we cannot forget it. We had an award ceremony, and we saw the triumphant return of Spicy. (laughs) I thought he did a nice job making fun of himself and potentially of the president. He said, and I quote, this is the largest audience to ever witness the Emmys, period. That's right. Sean Spicer, former press secretary, made a made a surprise entrance, uh, Melissa McCarthy style, (laughs) on a moving uh, podium. It was very funny. Spicer is trying to looking for life after the White House, and, and we uh, we all hope to see Sean Spicer around because he is a funny, colorful character. Maybe acting. That maybe exactly. that's his next career. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to take a deep dive into one of the more interesting speeches that has ever been given on the floor of the United Nations by our president, Donald Trump. Well, Jay, we had a very interesting week this week in international affairs. Donald Trump had a raucous speech at the U.N. where he did a number of things. He threatened to totally destroy North Korea. He called its leader Rocket Man. He warned the murderous Iranian government that it would not endure. And he also declared that much of the world is going to hell. So we are literally living in Dr. Strangelove. So what do you make of this politically and how do we consider this in the scale of sort of international diplomacy? Yeah, it's not every day where you get an Elton John song reference on the <laughs> right. floor of the General Assembly, right. but um, but the president managed to do that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the tone of the speech was unbelievably provocative, but it, the substance of the speech was effectively not that different than I think what had been a lot of U.S. policy. Um, it was sort of a greatest hits performance. A lot of the rhetoric that he used during the campaign, specifically going after uh, going after Iran, and making commentary about the nuclear deal that they struck there. The same time he was trying to urge North Korea not to fire a missile and negotiate, um, he's kind of poo-pooing the, the Iranian deal that the U.S. is a party to. The comments about Venezuela I thought were interesting. He's sort of taking a shot at socialism in general, which was sort of odd. And, you know, sort of trying to juxtapose America first with every country is should take their countries first. It was an interesting... Um, attempt to, to try to push back against um, what many people thought he'd go in there and give a much more conciliatory speech. 
He did not. He relishes bad cop, and he lets his secretary of state, and he lets uh, the UN UN ambassador play good cop. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a method he's been taking. Yeah. And it's not a bad strategy. We've seen other presidents employ this where they go hard on countries or on issues and then let the diplomatic corps walk it back. That can be useful in some context, but it doesn't feel like it's targeted here. It feels like it's a kind of masked strategy that essentially, like he said, that the world is going to hell and we should look out for our own borders as that happens. It's an unusual speech to give out a body whose responsibility is to make sure that the world is safe and that there's some kind of you know, general agreement towards having peaceful relations. There is obvious problem problems in the world. It's clear that some of these issues are not going to go away, but they are only solved through diplomacy. And throwing down this kind of self-imposed bright line, both internally for domestic consumption, that we're only going to think about the U.S., is one problem, because then people are less inclined to try to get involved when the rest of the world or one, one particular region needs U.S. help. The other is that if you throw that gauntlet down, then you essentially have decided that your allies are either going to be with you or be against you. This is a la George W. Bush, right? Either you're with us or you're against us. Well, there are a lot of people who weren't with them. And for a decade, the relations between the U.S. and those countries soured. So the self-imposed bright line, both domestically and internationally, creates some real dilemmas going forward for the president. I think what we forget sometimes is that President Trump views, I think, a lot of his speeches purely in a domestic context. His audience was not the global community. His audience was not the U.N. General Assembly. His audience really, I think, to the most part, is his base, right? Primary voters to some extent. He's looking more at 2018 than I think he is anything else. And so he's provided them a red meat speech full of, I think, the greatest hits of the campaign uh, without recognizing, I think, the context and the reality that things he says matter around the world. So now we have international leaders taking it, taking away from it, wondering what's going on. Um, we've seen this consistently with him, where he likes to put out an aggressive message and have you know, Secretary Tillerson sort of pull it back. We saw that with Korea. He pulled it back. Um, we saw that with Iran. He pulled it back. And so it's just sort of a pattern that's developed. Um, and I think it's done by design. The president doesn't play soft well. He doesn't play soft diplomacy well. Um, and this is really his only, I think, vehicle, and this is the, the method they're using. I think that it makes it difficult for the rest of the world to trust the president and the U.S.'s word because, like you say, he'll throw down this bright line and then walk back from it, right? We're not going to put up with it and then, oh, we will. Uh, or, you know, we're not going to be in the Paris climate change agreement and then, oh, but we maybe we will stay for some conditions. Um, the same is true for potentially the Iran deal, right? He said he's made a decision. We don't know what that decision is, but it probably includes some kind of modification to it. So there is a time and a place for the president to bluff. But if you're bluffing all the time, then it's going to be seen through diplomatically. And in other conditions where the rest of the world begins to flame up, other problems, other trade issues, other economic controversies, it's going to be harder for the U.S. to be able to negotiate through those issues. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to tell you why this speech matters so much to you. So, Jay, we've got a big international agenda, and the president has 
thrown down some pretty serious words. Why does this matter to people? The U.S.'s role in the global community, um, I think, is really critical. And it's important for the president to, to lead on issues. It's important for the president's word to be, to be taken. Um, and I think what speeches like this do is, is, is sort of pull back from that. And it's important for us to sort of recalibrate and, and have a voice globally. And right now we don't. The fact that, that there are so many tragedies going on in the world, right? There's an earthquake in Mexico, which has killed hundreds of people. We've got hurricanes lashing all of you know, the Caribbean. The fact that the U.S. is in a position to help should mean that they're able to commit and to continue that. And that's something I think that we can't forget in all of this. So the politics of this obviously play to certain groups, but the fact that the U.S. is so uniquely poised to be a help to its allies is a critical component to how it will be effective in the rest of the world, not just in terms of helping people, but also later on in terms of generating that help and using that to be able to solve problems down the future. Well, that's it for another week. If you like this political chatter, make sure to check out our Texas-centric episodes too. They're available every Friday afternoon, just like these episodes. As always, special thanks to Houston Public Media, our producers, Daisha Clay, Edel Hallen, and thanks to our engineer extraordinaire, Todd Hulslander. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It'll help other people find the show. Follow us on Twitter with the hashtag PartyPoliticsPod or email us at PartyPoliticsPod at HoustonPublicMedia.org. I'm Jay Iyer. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next week. His audience, in his mind, I think, is always focused on domestic, um, excuse me, a domestic, uh, let me do that entire segment. Yeah, yeah. can we just start over? As always, we want to put, the U.S.'s role in the global, uh, hold on. Yes, we have a role. Yeah, yeah. We have a role. All right, all right. (laughs) All right. The U.S.'s glow. All right, all right, one more time. All right. It's like Obamacare reveal over here. I know. We'll get it, we'll get it. Yeah, we'll get it, all right.